0: This episode is brought to you by Haymakers Community Engagement Consultants. If you run a business or nonprofit working to make the world a better place, then visit weMakeHay.com to see how Haymakers can help. This episode is also sponsored by ruralorganizing.org. Ruralorganizing.org has been equipping and empowering rural changemakers since 2012. Visit ruralorganizing.org for more information. Okay, okay, keep looking up! Okay. Ah! This is Flyover Overcooked, a podcast exploring the progressive arts, culture, and politics of rural America.
1: Growing up, uh, the political heroes I had were uh, like Paul Wellstone and, and Tom Harkin and Berkeley Bedell. And we don't have Midwest Democrats like that, or, or at least not nearly as much.
0: Hi, and welcome back to Flyover Folk. Today we're talking with J.D. Scholten. J.D. is a fifth-generation Iowan who received national attention in 2018 for his surprise near-defeat of Congressman Steve King in Iowa's 4th Congressional District. We talk about King's history with white nationalism, rural populism, and the role of small-town voters in the upcoming Iowa caucus. I'm Matt Hildreth. You're listening to Flyover Folk, exploring the progressive arts, culture, and politics of rural America. Do you want to just talk a little bit about uh, Northwest Iowa, Sioux City, and the 4th District, just so uh, people that aren't familiar with it can can know a little bit more about uh, the 4th District of Iowa?
1: Yeah. So the 4th District is a very spread out district. It's about 40% of the entire state of Iowa. It's the most rural district in Iowa. Uh, it's 39 counties. Um, I have grew up in Sioux City, which is right where uh, South Dakota, Nebraska, and Iowa all meet, and it's a nice little tri-state area. Uh, Sioux City is a immigrant meatpacking town since the 1880s. Um, we're out here. We're kind of the other part of Iowa, I would say, uh, especially amongst Democrats. Democrats love to go to Des Moines, Cedar Rapids, um, Iowa City. Uh, we're... we're out there, and so uh, in a typical presidential caucus year, uh, we would get that check off. A, a candidate would come in here once, maybe twice. Uh, but now with twenty-five people running, there's an opportunity that there's going to be a good dialogue and and people constantly coming through here, which I think is great uh, for the party and great for Western Iowa. And so when I decided to to run. I think it was very important to have somebody from Sioux City because there's a lot of opportunity here. And after the election you look at some of the voting results and some of the data and everything and it's really interesting because um how do you justify King getting reelected? I get asked that all the time. But right. in 2012 King, well King has never lost Woodbury County and that's the county that I'm from. And it went 55% for Kim Reynolds, the Republican uh, who's now our governor. And I won it by almost 54%. I I got about 53 something. And uh, that is one of the more meaningful things to me, Uh, even though I lost the election, that at least shows there's there's potential here. And and, um, it was really meaningful to me. But in 2012, King won this uh, Woodbury County but so did Obama. And so at some point there had to been a King Obama voter. And so, so it just kind of, uh, if you ask me to make sense of all this, uh, I have a difficult time because
0: who is that person? Well, it's my grandpa. Uh, Yeah, I mean, he, 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 he voted for, uh, I think he, I think he did vote for Obama King. Um, and I, I, you know, I, we, I spent my, my family's, like eight generations deep into King's district. And I know that I was in Larchwood for a long time, which is where I think your dad grew up or yeah. f- folks grew up. So um, so I, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about um, who, who are these voters in Northwest Iowa? But also I live in Ohio now. And here in Ohio, we had, you know, the Mike DeWine Republican candidate, um, Sherrod Brown voter, you know, Sherrod Brown's our uh, real right. populist, progressive working class Democrat. And then Mike DeWine sort of, um, you know, middle of the road Republican. So who are these people out there voting, splitting their ticket um, between, between candidates? King's always the extreme example, right? Because how do you, how do you vote for a black man for president and a white supremacist for your member of Congress? Right. Um, But my sense is that um, King, King runs very differently in the district Uh, than he does nationally. Nationally, he really is a firebrand, and I think he uses white supremacy and all that crazy stuff to raise money um, on the national stage. And then locally, he's kind of like, what, me? No, the media is spinning it. And that's, he he
1: really plays martyr a lot. Uh, Yeah. uh, But, I mean, you look at... You look at just what's happened since the election, the the week before the election or two weeks before the Washington Post, uh, had that article about him going on that Holocaust trip and then taking a side trip to meet with the the far right group in Austria. Right. Um, then right as the election was happening, and and of course King, like I'm being viewed, the media has it all wrong, all this, whatever. Um, then he gets into it with the Weekly Standard the week of the election. And then he said, I didn't call Mexicans dirt. Uh, you don't have the audio tape. Well, they release the tape and he calls them dirt. right? And so then, why in the world, if, if you are so victimized by the national media, and why in the world do you call, uh, or the, in, in, in a situation where you call New York Times fake news, Right. Why do you do a 56 minute interview with them then? Right. You know, so like, Right. he, a lot of, he, he pushes this on himself a lot. And,
0: and I think he's, I think that's, I think that's, I think he's, he's good at that. I mean, I think he plays into that rural resentment, um, uh, sort of this idea that the EPA is coming for your farm you know, that the, I remember he used to rail against the water saving shower heads. Right. (laughs) Right. It's just bizarre, the things that he takes on. But I think as insofar as he's able to develop a strategy, I think his strategy, you know, often is like, you know, sort of present himself as, as this victim, which is funny because he loves talking about how, you know, uh, people of color are playing, you know, playing the victim. And right. I even remember he went to the uh, Iowa State Multicultural Group and, and railed against multiculturalism as this like, you know, bizarre thing. Um, yeah. So I, I always, I always, I always kind of struggle with a- answering those questions about, um, about, you know, why it is he's been so successful. So successful, I think when you, you're, the perspective in the district is very, Different than the perspective outside of the district,
1: right? And I tried to write that in a USA Today uh, op-ed that I did right after the election, and uh, I wrote how the the media, especially newspapers, portray him differently in the district. And I didn't mean it like the Sioux City Journal. I thought did a phenomenal job covering the race, and traditionally this cycle, this cycle, right? And and traditionally they are more. Conservative, right? And so uh, I I thought they were very fair with everything, uh, and fair to King, where they didn't just write anything about him. uh, Some of the stuff we wanted to push, but I I I knew some of it was probably pushing a little too hard. Uh, But but then you get areas uh, a lot of I mean thirty nine counties. A lot of these local papers they don't talk about Steve King going to Austria. They don't talk about the uh the the uh, controversies but they do right. talk about him coming to town meeting with the mayor or meeting with a a, a local ethanol plant or something like that right and and of, that is how a lot of the people in the district view him is as oh he's our representative and he comes and he's a republican so i'm going to vote for him right and the controversies don't always uh, Matchup, and I think you're, what you mentioned earlier is exactly right. Where he has
0: this national persona, and he has this local persona, right? And he knows what he's doing. I mean, the, the other thing that I always struggled with is, you know, he, the question he doesn't ask himself when he wakes up in the morning. He's not. He's not asking himself, "How can I be the best person possible? How can I?" represent as many of my constituents as possible he wakes up in the morning and he says how close can i get to the line with white supremacy (laughs) i mean like well like that's the thing really bothered me even when he was talking about immigrants because what he'll do is he'll say things that are very clear i mean it it, it, it's the it's the epitome of dog whistle politics and and there was a time i think he was in storm lake when he when he talked about he was talking about immigrants and he was making the point i think he. He was making the point about this was years ago about how uh, we want to pick, you know, we want a merit-based immigration system, which you know I I, I tend to think more about family-based immigration. But fine, if you want to make a point about merit based immigration, that's a that's a legitimate conversation to have. But instead of talking about merit-based immigration, he starts talking about um, how if you have a hunting dog. You want to pick a hunting dog that's going to be, you know, pop up when you come into the room and is going to, you know, be ready to go and ready to work. You don't want some hunting dog sitting sitting on the couch. And it was so clear that he was talking about like lazy immigrants, you know, and 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 comparing them to dogs. And it's just like this constant thing that he's doing where he knows how to he knows how to have kind of speak out of both sides of his mouth so that people that on the national scene where he's really been a representative for the, for for organized white supremacy for for years say hey that's our guy we know what he's talking about uh but then he can kind of you know claim hey this is the media misconstruing my 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 words and it's just like for so long he has tried to push the line and push the agenda of those that you know have really crazy ideas that like growing up in in sioux where i grew up and you know where you grew up uh there's not a lot of card-carrying racists you know people are pretty much like we want to just, you know, we want good people in our communities, we want to work, we kinda of want people to leave us alone or whatever. Um and so they're not really tuned into that organized um world that 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 Steve King is is tuning into. And I think that's why he gets away with it. It's oh, just because
1: right. And I think things are starting to catch up with him. I'm really interested yeah. to see uh how the uh primary, the Republican primary
0: uh, right.
1: uh comes. I wanna see uh, fundraising and, and where the money's going, who's backing King and who's not. Um, right. I'm I'm really interested in, in seeing kind of what that looks like.
0: Yeah. Well, so in, in your experience, I mean, I think that's where, I think a lot of the reason why people are primarying him and a lot of the energy around King right now, I think one is because a lot of um, sort of his allies on the national stage, people like Chris Kobach and others, are, have really taken a hit. In the post-Trump world, but also because you ran such a close race with him, um, it really showed how how vulnerable he is. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just curious. Um, how, how, you know, your strategy seemed to I think because you're from the district, you're from a place like Sioux City, you understand sort of the concerns of of people that aren't necessarily tuned into politics, aren't you know coming out of the Des Mo- the Des Moines mindset. Um, So I'm wondering, you know, what was your strategy for for running against him? Because you didn't shy away from from some of the issues that the national media talks about. But at the same time, you ran on a platform that I don't see a lot of Democrats um, knowing how to embrace, you know, more of that rural populism.
1: Yeah. uh, Well, that's one of the reasons why I ran uh, is because growing up, uh, the political heroes I had were... uh, like Paul Wellstone and and Tom Harkin and Berkeley Bedell, and we don't have Midwest Democrats like that, or or at least not nearly as much. And and so uh, you guys are blessed in Ohio to have uh, Sherrod Brown, who, who's I would say cut from a similar cloth. Right. Um, and and what he mentions often is is that idea that you can be progressive and talk to the working class. It's not an either or. Um, and so that was part of it. Um, another part of it was like, I, I happened to play minor league baseball growing up and I wasn't the best player, but I worked my tail off and just that mentality, that grinder mentality and getting out there. And I knew I could outwork him and, Mm -hmm. and, um, we also tried to do things a little differently. Um, I didn't hire a campaign manager right away. I hired a comms person because I wanted to make sure that at some point you knew King was going to open up his mouth and say something um, stupid. And, and I wanted all signs to point to us. And And that really came through that last week when, when that Washington Post article came out and, and right. everything happened. And we raised over a million dollars in that last week. And I mean, that was 16 months in the making. In that, right, and and so uh, we were really on uh, uh, focused digitally, but then on the other side, we did an old school grassroots effort and went to all thirty nine counties at least three times. Most of the counties I went five six times, and once you saw. Um, you got out there and you saw people. And in that first time around, you see people like, oh, God bless you, you should, somebody should run against King. And,
0: right. mm-hmm. and then the
1: second time, they're like, oh, he's just not not Steve King. He's actually running for something. And right. I think that was the biggest thing is I could have sat out and, and on my stump speech said how awful King is, but that would have mm-hmm. got me nowhere. We 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 all know who he is. And what happened if he, um, well, take this, this uh, whoever runs against him this time, uh, they should not just talk about Steve King because he may not win the primary, and, right? And so um, I, I just firmly believe that that politics should be about what you can do, what you can improve people's lives, and and giving people a reason to vote for you. And, and I think what we were able to accomplish uh, uh, when I talk to these twenty twenty folks as they come through Western Iowa, I, I think that is an important message in right. in getting bogged down with talking about, Oh, what did Trump say today? And, and, yeah. and all that stuff that the conversation should be about what you are doing and what you are going to do for this, this country and, and has very little to do with, with Trump.
0: So that's a, that's a, that's a good transition. Cause one of the things I wanted to talk a little bit about was, um, 2020 and, um, I know that I miss being in Iowa a- around this time, you know, caucus time. It's crazy. I think for a lot of people that, uh, aren't from Iowa or haven't been in Iowa during caucus time, it's hard to imagine, um, how easy it is to run into presidential uh, presidential candidates. Yeah. I, I um, joked,
1: uh, when I, when I was talking, uh, on pod save America with Tommy Vidor, I joked that, uh, um, that growing up here was great because if you wanted Joe Biden at your barbecue, you could get him. And then Tommy said, well, and he would never leave.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there's that old joke in Iowa, like, who are you going to vote for? And you're like, I don't know. I've only met him a couple times. Yep, exactly. (laughs) That's exactly right um especially if i mean republicans love going to pizza ranch yes <laughs> uh, i don't know if i don't know if there's a Demo- democratic equivalent of pizza ranch but <laughs> in 2016 you couldn't go to a pizza ranch for, yeah. for those that don't know pizza ranch is a, a wonderful combination of fried chicken and pizza and mashed potatoes uh that is in about any any town in iowa larger than a thousand people about has one so yeah um they're they're i think big republican donors so yeah. Out of Sioux County, uh, yep. Iowa. That's right. Um. And but but I I'm I am curious. You know, um, if there is one place for Democrats to start thinking about a, a rural progressive strategy or rural populist strategy, um, it's going to come out of Iowa. I think this cycle. I think this cycle is going to be unique because, um, Trump. Right. Like we can't get around right. the fact that that. That that Trump happened, and I think that there's a mentality now that Democrats have that they didn't before, which is sort of like all of us or none of us. (laughs) Like we need a coalition that includes, uh, you know, Black voters in the South and Latino voters across the country, Um, and and we need you know a strong um, uh, engagement with communities of color and with women and with millennials. But then there also is this, I think, a renewed interest in um, the fact that we need to have something uh, for. Um, the code has become white working class, um, which sometimes I, I I agree with. I think sometimes we forget that the working class is the most diverse class. Right. Um, so it it really is holding together this coalition that reflects America. Um, and I think sometimes rural is forgotten, but but maybe um, maybe maybe this year is the time for for people to really sort of remember that. And I, I struggle because you know the I I, I struggle to 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 know. Um, what what the democratic platform is for some of these rural communities. Like, for example, you know, if you ask a, a uh, most probably candidates for office, name sort of three um, foundational uh, uh, pieces of legislation that you would support or that we need to pass specifically for rural issues. You know, they would talk about the farm bill maybe, and and maybe the, uh, maybe the reclaim act if they're from Appalachia or maybe egg jobs, if they're from the Southwest. But I don't really, I don't think we have like, you know, that platform for, for rural people. Um, and even when you go to candidate websites, it's like, you know, that they can rattle off a bunch of different kind of policies here or there, but I, I just don't see that unified, um, approach, um, or, or maybe, maybe it's more of a communications problem. But I, I'm wondering what you what the conversation in Iowa is about about this. Like, do you feel like people are starting to wake up? Do you feel like candidates are are recognizing that we need to have a real platform that goes beyond just ethanol or right? <laughs> or, um, you know, one or two things that sort of like you know the I, I always kind of call it the heartland pandering where you wear a Carhartt jacket and you say. I like corn or whatever. I mean, <laughs> r- rural is much more, um, uh, diverse than just, just how I think Democrats often sort of represent it. So do you have, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. And, and I mean, that's so much of what I was fighting against. Uh, I go into these small towns and, and they're like, Oh, you're a Democrat. And they look at the leader of the house, uh, for Democrats is from California. And the leader of the Senate is from New York. And they're like, well, w- And and they just, in the amount of conservative talk show radio that is uh, in this district, is 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 tremendous. And so that's what we're fighting against. And and so, like we keep on talking about the Whole Foods Party and how we're becoming more uh, suburban and urban. And then I, I live in a Dollar General district, and and what does that mean? And and so. Uh, I think there is a tremendous opportunity right now, and it, it's more than just uh talking about how the renewable fuel standards being abused by this administration. It's it's more uh, uh than about these tariffs, and and like that's that's the frustrating thing is is all these national reporters talk about the tariffs. That's that's what they think the voters care right. about here, and and that played little to no uh effect uh, in in my race right and and that is something that i don't think coastal people understand um and, and so but the thing that people do get worked up about is market consolidation right um and that is that i've had discussions with people who will never vote for me but they right. agree on what I stand for when it comes to agriculture and, and small communities. And, and like some of the things I, I think we need to address, uh, like this is the second most agriculture producing district in America, the fourth district.
0: And right. The first is in California.
1: I, I think so. Yeah. Um, and, and what I find very frustrating is that there's only two farm to table restaurants so, we right. have this amazing land, right. but and, and we can grow all this stuff, but it it doesn't feed us and right. and in several of the like these small towns, their grocery store is a dollar general that doesn't produce right. fresh produce yeah. so so what are we incentivizing in our agriculture policy in in the way we're doing it uh and, and they talk about uh like look at seed prices well let's to take it seeds for, for example, uh, it, in uh, like corn, uh, we're down to th- pretty much three mega companies that sell seed, right. and we have about the same that sell fertilizer uh, right. so seed prices have more than tripled in the last fifteen years, and does it produce more yield, and technology has changed? yes, absolutely, but a lot of these seeds you buy, but you don't own the seeds, so like right. like you bought a car but you don't own it like that. Yeah. It, it makes, it makes absolutely no sense. How many things have you bought and that you don't own? And so, yeah.
0: and paid f- uh, full out for. And so that's, that's part of it. And so, uh, C- can we just, can we just dive into Cause I think that that yeah. is something that people don't understand about agriculture is how much, I mean, people love to blame farmers for environmental concerns and they love to, you know, blame farmers for, uh, especially in poultry and all these other areas, but I don't think people, they, when they hear "farmer," they think of farmer from like 1950 and, and right. before. Right. Right. Farming has changed so much that when you're talking about, you don't own your seed. You're saying that you can't save seeds, and you can't, you can't use your seed. So you plant corn, right? Right. Uh, most of us that have ever gardened, you know, you would take out your tomatoes or whatever, but then you might save some of the seeds that come from the tomatoes right. for next year. You yep. can't do that anymore. No, because it's illegal. The seed comp, the seed company owns the, 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 the they've copyrighted yep. biology yeah. so that they own the, they own the seed. They own, and then they say what you can do with it. So you become, rather than becoming a farmer, you're more of like a, um, you're just kind of the, you, you're, you, you just rent Right. Yeah, I mean, and, and, then, and this happens with poultry as well, where oh, and, you don't and actually hogs. own the chickens. You're just, yeah. you, so the farmers take all the liability and the corporations get all the rewards.
1: Right. And, and profits have, have just uh, less than 15 cents of the consumer dollar makes it way back to the farmer, which is the lowest all time. Right. And, and so when we talk, uh, and this is a big thing, like uh, that. The Democratic Party has fallen behind on is is how do we talk to these folks because our messages play well with there. You look at how universal health care got passed in Canada, right. right? And that's it was Saskatchewan farmers. You right. you look at um like the number one thing farmers need is health insurance right now, and, and right. uh and that's what we talked about at these farm tables or farm uh, forums with with despite low commodity prices, despite uh consolidation and tariffs and all this stuff. The number one thing we talked about was healthcare. And and but the way we talk to them about agriculture, we can't just be pointing at them and saying, hey, we're gonna we need uh to change this so everything's environmentally friendly. Like right. it's a process. And uh my goal in all this is to make sure that when we pass farms down to the next generation, they're thriving economically and they're thriving environmentally. And right now they're neither.
0: Right. And, and I think that that's, I think that's a connection that a lot of progressive miss sometimes. Right. So you run into like the connection between farming and, 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 uh, water quality. For example, a lot of it has to do with how much space do you leave between your right. field and the river? and those buffer zones um usually you can you can get you know subsidies or whatever to not farm so close up to the, the river waterway. so you leave yeah the crp land so what that does is it it allows for you know all of the farming activity to get fertilized through the natural sort of grasses before it gets into the river well n- now if you're only getting 15 cents off the dollar uh and and CRP prices are lower and you could make more money to farm all the way up to the water you're going to farm all the way up to the water because you have to maximize your uh because your your margins are so low you have to maximize your outputs right which then Im- impacts water quality and i think that that's um a lot of times the farmer gets blamed for that um and i think sometimes maybe they should be but i think a lot of people need to understand i think where the common ground is on issues like that is around what like you're saying market consolidation monopolies in agriculture things like that because um the more that um the, the, the more that you take the farmer out of the process the more that you prevent them from saving seeds and doing all the things that they've been doing for thousands of years um and you kind of you you turn it into this financial benefit for th- the three major agricultural corporations Um, the more I think that it hurts everybody across the board. Um, But I I do also wonder about non-farming rural people. Right. uh, Because I think that that's another piece that's really missed is, um, and I think that's why I like, you know, when you're talking about the family dollar district, and I mean, family dollar has just been, I think, devastating to a lot of small towns. It's doing to small towns what Walmart did to maybe bigger cities, right? Like it's, it's taking away local economies. It's it's extracting money from often poor rural people and and sending it out of out of their communities. Um and the polling that ruralorganizing.org did, uh, they did national rural poll and it showed that only 8% of um rural people are connected to agriculture where they're making more than 25% of their income from from on farms. And and I think it's probably higher in Iowa, but a lot of the polling I've seen from other places suggests that as well. So, you know, I think that that's Something that you you were able to do um, is to think about, you know, in Iowa, often you're, when you're talking about rural people, you're talking about trailer courts. You know, you're talking about people that are uh, sort of having former to- manufacturing jobs. And, and, and there's these uh, spaces where I think the opportunity has been taken out of these communities and people are having to decide between leaving their homes or going to other places. Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about where you see opportunities in that in, in in, in, those, in those parts of the community.
1: Right. And uh, I'll say, I'll lead off by saying one of the things I was really trying to push and, and still continue to try to push is bringing more and more technology into the district. Uh, will that solve everything? No. But right now there's a test uh, experiment in Jefferson, Iowa, uh, rural community, that uh, they're they're putting $70,000 tech jobs in uh, in, in Jefferson. And that's something representative Ro Khanna is working with, uh, here in Iowa, which I think is phenomenal. And that's going to change that district. And we talk about as Democrats, we talk about raising the minimum wage, but, uh, in my district, it's, it's the fight for $55,000, $65,000 and $75,000 jobs. Those are the jobs that are, are are desperately needed, not the, not the, $20,000 $20,000 a year or, or whatever. Um, and, and But then you also see, like, Iowa State is in this district. And in 2017, they graduated 1,400 students who could go into technology. And, and a lot of – in that uh, – Iowa State tends to be the more uh, rural uh, college around here. Yeah, it's here. a land-grant land institute. Right, it's a land-grant institute. And so uh, us, and a lot of people from the 4th District go there. And so they graduated 1,400 students that could go into technology. A year later in 2018, only 258 were, were working in Iowa. So that's 18%. Yeah. And the majority of those people are working in Des Moines in, or, or maybe Cedar Rapids. And so that's what we're seeing is as much as we export hogs or wind energy or corn, the number one thing we produce are, are, are people and, and right. losing them because there's, we don't have the economy that can absorb them. We're not adapting to the times. And, and so that's what, uh, one way of doing that is is creating entrepreneurship through technology. And, right. and that is uh, uh, something that I, I feel that has potentially uh, could save a lot of these rural communities I mean, exactly when you talk about a dollar general store that, uh, um, it took away a local, uh, company, it, it takes money, uh, doesn't sell fresh produce. It takes money and sends it to wherever their corporate headquarters uh, is located. It doesn't give as much back. And a lot of these places, they offer $10 an hour jobs with no benefits. And, And so, uh, you, you just see this cycle of, of, of not improving people's lives or improving people's, uh, the communities.
0: Right. Well, and one thing that I've talked to a lot of, um, rural social, social scientists about, I just, I always say, you know, there, there's some communities that are wealthy rural communities. I think Sioux County, <laughs> Iowa is one of them. And, yeah. Um, you know, you think of Jackson Hole, Wyoming, you know, some of these tourist places, but there's a lot of um, rural communities um, that are suffering, especially in places like Appalachia, which is um, about an hour from where I'm at now. Um, And I asked them, what what is the connection between rural communities and poverty? Um, And I think one of the, the Best answers that I've heard is that there's a connection to extractive industries in rural communities. Yeah. You know, if you look at where our energy is produced, it's in rural communities. If you look at where our food is produced, it's in rural communities. Um, and so, in places like Appalachia, where you had coal mining, you had you had the coal industry coming in, buying up all these mineral rights, consolidating the wealth um, around natural resources to to you know a, a couple people or a couple. Uh, corporations um and you know they they're pulling all of this um this 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 wealth out of out of the hills um and there's a candidate running for governor now in West Virginia that talks about how in terms of resources West, West Virginia is one of the richest uh states in, in the country and it's because if you look at um where it had come from you know the money that was made from from coal um, it was it was it, it, you know there was a lot of natural resources there but it was it, it was extracted from the communities the communities didn't benefit from it um and i think farming is becoming more of an extractive industry as we were talking about you know through the consolidation of a, a couple of, uh ag corporations and and you know the the whole dynamic dynamics around farmers getting squeezed and squeezed more um through uh you know, the seeds and all that kind of stuff. But I'm starting to see family dollar (laughs) and Walmart becoming kind of the next extractive industry uh, from from these communities, I think, where, you know, um, people are working there, they're making, they're getting low paying jobs. um, And all of the actual transfer of wealth is, is taking money from rural people and sending it to well, Bentonville, Arkansas, or, or whatever, and I think that's that's something that I'm really worried about for the future with these small towns is you know the, the and, and small town folks seem to know that l- local is better for them. they want to keep their dollar in the community as long as possible.
1: well I mean you look at I, I look at my my grandfather and my 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 dad's dad, who had a seed and feed shop in in uh, Larchwood, and they sold it years ago, and now that job's a corporate job that's not an independent um, entrepreneur, um, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's now like just a very small, like his job is now, uh, consolidated into like a very small part of a regional, um, program for, uh, like one of the major corporations. And, and so, uh, you look at this tariffs and, and you look at what's happening in Iowa right now and you talk about China moving its supply chain down to Brazil in or South America and and so then you look at well what are we going to do with all our soybeans next year if we don't have a market for them right and 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 so like you you get all this about like who's fighting for these these Iowa farmers right now right and and you look at the 12 billion dollar bailout well 124 million dollars is going down to to Brazil to JBS uh, who owns most of the cattle uh, in the U S and right. and one in four hogs in Iowa is owned by China. Right. And, and, and like, we're just becoming this thing that, that, that just who we're trying to figure out who we are uh, again, because we're not that, that um, I don't know. It just, it's very frustrating to see everything getting sold uh, to uh, out of Iowa and we were lacking our independence we're lacking our our thing that made us who we are that that reason why my ancestors came from Norway and, and Denmark and, and and Germany and and just to come here and farm to improve the lives uh, of their children and, and allow them for that American dream and so much we're we're caught in the American dream is based on uh, our our zip code. Right. <laughs> and the zip codes that are in this fourth district are becoming more and more uh, going in the wrong direction. And, and that's what I'm fighting against.
0: So can you talk a little bit about what's next for you?
1: Yeah. Well, I launched a anti-poverty nonprofit that focuses on the earned income tax credit. And so we're uh, I'm going around the whole state uh, trying to talk with folks to, to raise awareness because 25% of folks who qualify for the earned income tax credit uh, don't receive it and so we're trying to uh, push that out and because that leaves about 147 million dollars on the table just here in Iowa alone and so it's one of the best policies uh, for anti-poverty especially amongst children and especially it benefits uh, single parents and so um, I'm Working, I'm, I'm doing events with a lot of the 2020 candidates and trying to raise awareness in this. Um, as far as what's next politically, I don't know. Um, uh, if you check social media, there's people who think I should run again, and there's people who think I should run for Senate and and all that jazz. Um, there's, I don't know yet. I, I'm trying to figure out my own life get my legs underneath me a little bit and then uh can decide and i'm in no rush to to decide i think november of 2020 i think on the presidential side people are eager and everything pretty pumped up uh especially here in iowa uh for the the uh, house or potentially the senate uh i'm in no rush for that
0: well i uh, appreciate you uh taking some time and, and chatting with us and uh, and appreciate all that you're doing for Iowa and, and rural America in general.
1: Uh, thank you. Thank, thank you for doing all that you're doing for Iowa and, uh, and, and fighting the rural fight.
0: You've been listening to Fly Over Folk. A big shout out today to our guest J.D. Scholten. You can find out more about him on Twitter at Scholten for Iowa. And as always, thank you to the ruralists, for our music and our intro. Find out more about the ruralists at northwestofnowhere.com. And as always, please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening.